how do, how do people actually interact with each other? Is connecting people really going to make the world a better place to each other? That's you know, which is which is the fundamental mission statement of Facebook. We're going to connect people to make the world a better place. Which people, where, how are you going to connect them? I mean, anyone who spent five minutes in a humanities undergraduate class would say, hang on a second, what is it you're talking about here? So no, we don't have to solve that. We, we can't solve those problems. I think we need to acknowledge them, though, in the products that we build and, and in our journalism. We have to acknowledge them in our journalism as well. And I think journalism is, is reckoning with that, actually, at the same time that Silicon Valley is going, ooh, maybe actually we shouldn't have designed our products to work in exactly the way that they do. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 4th, 2021. It's another episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation and misinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Emily Bell, the founding director of the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. Emily testified before Congress last week about the role of legacy media and cable news in particular, in spreading disinformation. But she's also one of the keenest observers of the online news ecosystem, and knows a lot about it from her days as director of digital content for The Guardian. We asked Emily about the relationship between online and offline media in spreading disinformation, the role different institutions need to play in fixing what's broken, and whether all that talk about fighting misinformation is a bit of a red herring. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 4th. Emily Bell on journalism in the platform era. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. We we wanted to have you on to talk about two sort of important and inextricably linked parts of the story of our inf- information ecosystem, by which I mean offline and online media. Too often, it seems like they're they're sort of talked about in silos, you know, as two very different things, and we wanted to avoid that. And you're especially well positioned to do that as someone who sort of has intimate knowledge of, of both of those parts. Last week, you testified before Congress about disinformation and extremism in media and a hearing that focused on cable companies and offline media. So to start off, how bad is the journalistic <laughs> landscape right now, both in TV and print? And how did we get here? Oh, so leading question, leading the witness, how bad is it? So, well, there are several ways to answer that, one of which is it's not as bad as you think. I think we have become, we can talk about this later, about the focus that we have on the bad parts. Uh, but what I do think happened in the past uh, four years is that you see what happens when particularly powerful offline media, say, let's pluck a name out the air, Fox News and Rupert Murdoch, its owner, align with a presidency, say, for instance, Donald Trump, who has, towards the end, certainly of his administration, and maybe other parts during his administration as well, has uh, authoritarian tendencies. And when you get powerful media aligning with powerful politicians, then you're in trouble because that really is how authoritarianism grows. And and people say, well, it's not authoritarian because it's democratically elected. You can be democratically elected and still be anti-democratic. So I think we had this perfect storm of online media not really creating any barriers whatsoever, offline media allying with power, which they often do, and then a lack really of any other accountability systems or measures that that stop that alliance creating a very powerful effect on a minority but sizable minority of the population and particularly a small minority which was inspired to act in the way that we saw it acting on the the 6th of January. So how bad is the journalism within that? I I think the worst of the journalism is pretty bad. Uh, It's no longer truth-based. It's certainly not about accountability. But alongside that, we also have some fairly extraordinary acts of journalism, I think, every day. And if you think about all the accountability journalism that was done on the Trump presidency over the past four years, you know, far outstrips, I think, that type of reporting on other previous presidents. And yet it didn't really have much of an effect. And that's probably the thing that I think worries most of us the most, and particularly those of us in uh, the journalistic field. 
So that's super fascinating. I want to dig in a little bit more on that. One of the other themes of the hearing was sort of, this isn't a new problem, right? That's obviously true. Fake news is as old as the Republic or the printing press or whatever historical moment takes your fancy. And so given your last answer and and that fact, is this really a media problem or a tech problem or is it a political problem? Like, when you said it's not as bad as you think, do you think we are in kind of like a moral panic about this, the same kind we see every time there's a communications me- a new communications medium, or do you think some of the fear is justified? I think it's a really hard question to answer, and I've listened to much more of the people than me grapple with it. So, so I think I'm just going to take back. Uh, it's not as bad as you think. Because sorry, having started out on that Damn one, it. Uh, we're doing so well. <laughs> this is the first positive guest we've had in ages. So, so what I think is not as bad as you think. I don't think misinformation is the entirety of the problem. And so, I think that's the bit of the framing that I want to come back to. I think everything is the problem and some of the disrupting forces, a lot of which do come from technology, but it's a particular model of technology which is encouraged by by a particular model of capitalism or financing. Uh, It's created a a, a big disruption in all parts of the workplace and it's created instability in society from the top to the bottom. Some of that instability is good and long overdue. Some of of it is quite negative and disorienting. Uh, So I think that part of this is just an outcome of all of those things coming together. Underneath it all, it's nearly always in these situations, a combination of economics and technology in in some way. You know, if you, you read uh, a lot of us have been going back and clinging to Manuel Castells uh, and his sort of theorising on this. <laughs> he just says very interesting things, which I think draw strong parallels between what's happening now and what happened in the Industrial Revolution. And after the Industrial Re- Revolution, we had two extremely significant wars, huge amounts of displacement, lots of upheaval. We've had a couple. We, you know, we've had a very significant war in the Middle East going on. It would be nice if we avoided a another third world war, but I think in other in other ways we're experiencing a similar level of being destabilized. And because everything is mediated these days, I think we are tempted to think everything is the media. It comes as a horrible shock to me. Who spent my entire life writing about the business aspects of media and particularly media and technology to suddenly realize that your job, uh, which was to be on the fringes of the real stuff going on is now the only thing that anyone can talk about. And, and, and so to some extent, I think you have to sort of unpick that. What is, goes back to your question right at the beginning, what's online and what's offline, what's mediated, what's not mediated. And that I think is what we're having a huge amount of difficulty with at the moment is understanding that actually the big change could just be that this is, how we live our lives now, that there is no real online and offline. You can't distinguish between the two and that sort of proximity between what's mediated and action and pushing people to action, nudging people to action. It's much harder to draw those lines than it was in the past. And to what extent is the the struggle of local news in the US part of that problem? I thought of that immediately when you started talking about the business aspects. You know, we hear so much about the decline of local news, the difficulty of finding a new sort of business model in the era of the internet. How much do you see that as a, a cause or effect of this story? I sort of think that a lot of these are, are, are symptoms. So, so in other words, they're kind of effects. With local news... I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but we've all experienced local news, which has, how can I put it, not been very good in the past. So when people start lamenting the death of their local newspaper and then realising that the last big front page story it carried was, um, in the case of my own hometown newspaper, Dog Escapes Through Front Hedge, and you think, just is really, are we missing that much? But but then actually on a, on a less sort of flippant note, Once you lose a kind of connection and community, and particularly accountability and and record keeping in your local community, you do kick away the bottom rung of the ladder of democracy. And I think it's very hard to evaluate uh, those shifts until they've happened. And what we've seen in America in the last 15 years is that bottom rung being kicked away really quickly. And we've seen every reaction from, hey, it doesn't matter Facebook groups, next door, citizen, they're going to flood into this zone and replace uh, those rather 
kind of out of date newspapers with with a different, better version of this through to how on earth do I find out anything about what's happened around me? How do I know who's died? <laughs> how do I know? How do I know when the school board meeting is? And and so I think that it's very, I think it's really significant. I think the only, the layer of journalism that matters most in some ways is that layer of local journalism. And it's easily dismissed, particularly by big journalism, because once you're an editor and a reporter on a big paper or a broadcast station, you tend to think about it a lot less, but we already see that the lack of local news, it feeds the entire system. So what, so once it goes away, you lose all sorts of things, which I think are difficult to account for at the time. So earlier you said the bad stuff is pretty bad. And during the hearing last week, you were asked by Representative Billy Long, yes or no, would you support taking Fox News, Newsmax, and One American News off the air? And you replied something along the lines of, yes or no questions don't give very useful answers. So I wanted to provide you an opportunity now to provide a more nuanced answer. Both answers are obviously extremely uncomfortable, right? Like the whole point right. of the hearing was that these channels right. are doing damage, this stuff, this bad stuff is pretty bad. But on the other hand, the idea of censoring an entire news source makes people queasy, makes me queasy. So what's your in-between answer? Yes, I I think actually now revisiting it, I would just go back and say, no, I'm not in favour of taking them off the air. I just didn't want to necessarily be caught out that way by somebody who was getting me to say something. But no, I mean, obviously, it's not the answer. It is not the answer. I do think, though, that we've all grown up with weird and fringe sources of news, these odd conspiracy theories. But they've always been at the fringe. And I think putting them in the middle of the conversation is inevitable, because if you look at, say, Fox News, it's the most successful cable channel in history, but it's still got a relatively small daily viewing population, say, three to four million at its absolute peak in a country of 300 million plus people. I, I, I think that we can get overly focused on a few news brands. And you have to remember that everybody on Capitol Hill only watches cable news. It's the only thing that matters to them. That's why we were having the hearing. It's why they wrote the letter. The uh, Democrats wrote the letter to cable carriers saying, are your customers aware that they're paying for One American News Network and Newsmax? We became embroiled in a bit of policy theatre around about that. And then, would you take these channels off the air is the inevitable question. And the answer is, well, Probably not. No, I definitely wouldn't take them off the air. Uh, I'm surprised that perhaps they're as widespread as they now are, that people are finding something in them that speaks to them, particularly as they are so clearly devoid. Well, for them, I, I would leave Fox out of this. I would say that One American News and Newsmax are pretty much devoid of regular news values. I think Fox is much more complicated. Fox is like Russia Today. They're going to love that parallels, but it's like RT which is you can watch a whole day of RT and you'll see some quite sensible things. And then you'll see things where you go, oh, actually, this is this is quite useful or interesting. And then you'll see something that's so crazy that you can't quite believe they've put it on the air. And then there'll be huge gaps or remission or, or just putting one side of it. But the idea that you just take things off the air or get rid of bad news sources, I think it, that's not the country that we live in. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the world that we want to live in either. So you said everyone on the Hill just watches cable news and that's why you are having the hearings. But on the other hand, I can't help but notice, you know, we've had, I don't know how many hearings now with the tech CEOs over the last couple of years. And this was the first hearing about legacy media and offline media. So why do you think that is? And and do you think that's wrong? Or do you think that it's good that we've been bashing these tech CEOs around the head for, for as long as we have? Well, I think, I mean, there's a big difference as well between Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and whoever it was who turned up for Google and myself and Jonathan Turley and Soledad O'Brien, even though Soledad's actually a bigger star than any of those uh, other people in the tech hearings. But uh, so I suppose the point is, is this, that Capitol Hill feels really queasy about tackling the media because of the First Amendment. So in some ways, I was quite surprised we were having that hearing at all. In Britain, we wouldn't hesitate to drag newspaper editors and proprietors into Parliament. In fact, some of our most entertaining televised hearings have been around exactly 
those issues. But here, because of the First Amendment, you just don't expect to see it. So, so I think it's. I think it has been really interesting how we saw before the election the hearings where you had Ted Cruz yelling at tech CEOs about censoring the right, and because tech is not bracketed under the First Amendment you felt that they were getting a, a, a grilling and a treatment that they would never give to cable news owners or newspaper editors because it's just constitutionally not allowed. So I think in a way, I, I know what you're saying, but it, it comes now to the heart of, you know, the heart of America's problem, really, which is the First Amendment says you can't interfere with any of these things. And yet one could hypothesise that America now has a speech problem. And it doesn't know how to solve it, partly because of the First Amendment. Yeah, I think you're completely right about the the divergence in how Congress seems to think of cable versus the internet in terms of not seeming to understand that, uh, of course, tech companies, there's there's also a First Amendment interest with them. I do wonder whether part of that is just because members of Congress, as you say, watch cable news all the time, but maybe don't use the internet so much. <laughs> but moving on, so you you suggested in your testimony that one of the, the problems that we're facing has been the sort of the highly deregulated media environment the United States, particularly over the last 40 years. Can you talk about that a bit, especially comparatively? Like what what kind of regulation has the UK done, for example, that's worked? Is the ecosystem any better? So the, so so it's interesting, isn't it? Because the in the UK, the media sector used to have more regulations than almost any sector other than defense. It was absurdly overregulated. And in the US, you have almost the opposite kind of state of affairs. So Europe has tended to regulate the media environment much more strictly. And in Britain, we would look at our regulations and think, well, they look pretty bad. But oh, my God, look at Germany. They actually tell you how many minutes you can have of advertising, where to put them to protect the press barons as opposed to the TV. So there's a lot of micromanagement in how uh, European authorities have traditionally regulated the media. Is it any better, I think, is a really great question, because I wouldn't honestly look at the British press landscape at the moment and say it was better than America. In fact, I would say it's probably markedly worse. We have a number of daily newspapers that are de facto house magazines for the Conservative Party. Uh, My background is very much with Guardian, the Guardian newspaper, where I worked for a very long time before I came to America and disappeared into academia. But the, the, the BBC is a sort of a, a, an interesting case of a, a, a political football. You know, you have this great project, imaginative project in state broadcasting or rather public broadcasting because it's not controlled by the state, uh, which lasted from 1922 to, well, let's hope 2022. So it's 100 years and, and, and it has produced some absolutely extraordinary cultural, I think, assets. You know, if you think about Britain, it's basically a cultural service economy. It's not really, doesn't make anything anymore. It's where, it's where it's the thing that we're still really good at in the rest of the world. So maybe the regulated environment has created that in a, in a, in a way. But in terms of producing quality, I don't know, sort of sustainable quality journalism in terms of protecting local news, really protecting local news, it's hard to say that it's markedly better. And that, and that sort of perplexes me. So because instinctively, I feel that we need more regulation in the US. You know, if you think about the US, what is now regulated in terms of the US media landscape? It's really hard to think of anything which is regulated with anything other than the very, very lightest of touches. That, that's one of the things I think that seems to have landed us in a in a bad place. I mean, one thing I would say is that Fox News has been fined a number of times in the UK and then was eventually taken off the air in August because Rupert Murdoch said, oh, we can't bother to pay the transponder fees. Nobody watches it. But I did wonder whether it was because it was censored sort of three or four times during the course of 2020 by Ofcom, which is the um, overarching uh, communications regulator in the UK. So that's an interesting divergence in those sort of parallels. And did the fines actually help? Like, did they did they rein Fox in at all? Not really, no, because it was just a rebroadcast of everything that was in the US. But I think it's a, it's a marker, isn't it, that says culturally we don't really tolerate this. And and 
a lot of this is so difficult because I do think that journalism is so culturally specific. It's very hard to come up with wrong, one regulatory environment to rule them all, which is perhaps where we can uh, drag everything much to Evelyn's horror, horror back to the oversight board. <laughs> because, I do, I, because I just think it's almost like this impossible task of saying what is right at any one point for how you might think about fining or regulating content within any environment. And the Americans have gone down the route that says, well, the government's just not going to do that. So we're going to hope that companies come up with uh, ways to do it themselves. In Europe, you tend to have just much more kind of regulatory intervention. I I have a theory, which is it's because uh, Europe has very loose social mores. We fight, swear at each other. Uh, People wander around in public with no clothes on, that kind of thing. America has incredibly strict social mores, very polite to people, no swearing, and not that argumentative until quite recently. And so therefore, it's always felt as though you didn't really need some of the laws that we have because people just police and regulate themselves. As it becomes more out of control, I think you, you will find that you just have to create some regulatory barriers. I could be wrong about that, but it just feels to me like that is why America at the moment is looking at Europe increasingly because there's you know there are many sectarian uh, conflicts in Europe that have been over a long period of time. Speech laws come out of that. You know the, the Germans haven't heavily regulated the media market because they like making rules or maybe they do like making rules, but it's secondary to the fact that they had to do that. So I think that those are things that America just feels that it's never had to face, and, and now possibly it does. It's our our Puritan ancestors. You are Puritans. That is something I've noticed about this country. You're so you are pure. You're basically still in your tall hats. You know, in in some ways and not in others, right? I mean, I've. It's interesting when you you make the point about sort of cultural specificity that the the real tool that seems to be pushing back with some success against networks like Fox, OAN, Newsmax is defamation law. Um, and the the notion of suing someone uh, who did something wrong to you is is very American, right? We we love to go to court. Um, so I wonder if that's kind of our our equivalent of the regulations that you're pointing to. I, I literally never thought, as a journalist who came from the UK, who's been on the wrong end of a defamation suit on at least one occasion, I would be cheering for defamation suits. And yet, here we are. You're absolutely right that I think that I. I it is very odd coming from an environment which is, you know, Britain is absolutely the home of the libel suit. And America is, I always thought, thankfully, free of libel. But look at the Dominion lawsuits against various news channels. They've effectively completely shut down that line of argument about the election being rigged by just saying, you know, OK, well, you're going to have to come to court and prove that that's the case uh, because you're damaging our business. And, and I, it, it's really fascinating, isn't it? Are we going to see more and more of that? I'd love to know from you lawyer, lawyery people if you think that that is actually going to be a growth area. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to watch. Um, so, so I wanted to talk a little more about the relationship between online and offline media ecosystems. We had uh, Johai Benkler on the podcast a while ago, and he and his co-authors have a, a body of work that you're you're aware of, I'm sure, that suggests that a lot of online dis and misinformation is not bottom-up, you know, not driven by bots or trolls or people who are misinformed, but top-down, and that it, it comes from big media personalities. It comes from verified accounts spreading false narratives. Uh, he was focusing on voter fraud there, but suggests that it applied more broadly, and that argue that this is sort of exacerbated by asymmetric polarization, particularly the specifics of the sort of right-wing media ecosystem. What's your take on that and the this idea of the relationship between social media and legacy media? Yeah, so I, I mean, Yokai's work, I think, is great. And I'm so grateful that he's done it. And I think I agree with a lot of it. I think where we probably depart is that I just don't think that you can separate the two. I think that all of the things that he describes in terms of asymmetric polarization existed to some extent before the advent of broadband internet. But really, the sort of since 2012, the share button, share button on mobile on Facebook is my starting point for this. It's just taken off it in a way that I think makes it, I'm not sure how useful it is to separate social from legacy. I think it's more about systems of power. 
So I think it is about the alignment of power between whether it's online or offline, whether it's Rupert Murdoch or whether it's Mark Zuckerberg and whether it's Donald Trump or, you know, Bolsonaro or Rodrigo Duterte or whoever it is. It's, and I don't think Fox would have exactly the same output as it has today if social media didn't exist. I think that, I know that, I mean, I don't even think that, you know, our research shows that. Social media really shapes the way that newsrooms think about stories. Uh, it shapes how many stories they put out there. It shapes how headlines are written. You know, every, everything, you, you cannot say, oh, this comes from legacy media and then moves into online media. And rethinking that paradigm, I think, is something which actually, it's, you know, it is, it's really difficult to do, partly because we lack a lot of the data which would enable us to do it more easily. So, so in, in general, I agree, but I think it's about power. I think it's about alignments of power much more than it is about saying, well, it's online and offline. That's such a great point. And I love your example of the share button because it gets to the the point that there is nothing about these platforms that is natural or inevitable or immutable. And we kind of have like gotten used to the way that they are, but they don't have to be that way. And tiny design features like the share or that have been constructed fundamentally shape the way that the ecosystem works and, and produces all these sort of flow on dynamics that can really change everything. But getting back to the point of, of speaking of things like they're separate, but maybe they shouldn't be, this gets to something that I've wanted to ask you about for a long time. So in a great interview that you did with the Columbia Journalism Review, I'm going to quote from you here, and I'm, I'm sorry in advance for reading a long quote of yours at you, but it's it's so good and I think our listeners will benefit a lot from hearing it. So moderation alone cannot solve the systemic problem that they are built to enable this. In the same way, Fox News is designed to provoke extreme loyalty and adherence. We have become hypnotized by the idea of fighting misinformation, which is such a popular theme, but like the war on terror, it is both a fantasy and on the terms under which it is framed, it is not a winnable fight. We talk about fact-checking, debunking, fighting misinformation, because as someone wiser than me once put it, it is easier to participate in that wild goose chase than to tackle the big underlying problems such as racism, poverty, and and social inequality. And this really resonated with me because I think we do spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about content moderation. I mean, it, it, it's great for me and my career because it's what I study, but I actually think it's way less important than people think. But we put focus on it because it's right in front of us and it feels like the easiest lever to pull to deal with you know, bad content, however defined. But also because the things that you mentioned, racism, poverty, and social inequality, seem um, <laughs> hard to solve, to put it mildly. So do you agree with that? And if so, isn't that a profoundly pessimistic take? Like we're doomed until we solve racism, poverty, and social inequality? I don't know what part of me you haven't recognised as an incredible pessimist, but I basically made a career out of being the most pessimistic person in the room. So yes, it is a pessimistic take. And, and I do, you know, I do think it's right that we have produced, in 2017, we produced this idea of fighting misinformation. I'm partly going to blame the tech companies for that. So I went to a lot of these rather tedious meetings where you have to sit in much nicer offices than the ones that you work in that belong to people like Google and Facebook. And I was told over and over again by tech executives that it seems to us there are two really big problems here, one of which is trust in journalism. Uh, well, actually, three problems. Trust in journalism, lack of uh, media literacy among general population, and we have to fight misinformation. And a lot of the misinformation comes from legacy media. And I sort of started to think, so this is all like asking you to sign up to things that you would obviously sign up for. <laughs> Go, yes, of course, let's make journalism more trusted. Yes, let's make people understand what they're saying. And then I started to think, no, hang on a second. This is this is actually about pushing away the responsibility for exactly what you were talking about, which is tiny design changes that have this enormous effect on everything in the real world and, and not really thinking about those affordances or modelling them or having any kind of risk you know not knowing what the threat surfaces are if you if you create this within your own product not really knowing what an algorithm is going to do until you've written it and let it run around a bit you know all, all of those things so can we make any progress before we solve 
all those big underlying problems. Well, we better have because we haven't solved those underlying problems for about the last thousand years. So, so, so we're going to. But I think that we we designed lots of products and we designed a media ecosystem which hasn't taken into account the world in which they're operating. Just hasn't sort of looked up from its its code base and gone. Hang on a second. How do how do people actually interact with each other? Is connecting people really going to make the world a better place to each other? That's you know, which is which is a fundamental mission statement of Facebook. We're going to connect people to make the world a better place. Which people, where, how are you going to connect them? I mean, anyone who spent five minutes in a humanities <laughs> undergraduate class would say, hang on a second. What's it you're talking about here? So no, we don't have to solve that. We we can't solve those problems. I think we need to acknowledge them though in the products that we build and, and in our journalism. We have to acknowledge them in our journalism as well. And I think journalism is is reckoning with that actually at the same time that Silicon Valley is going, ooh, maybe actually we shouldn't have designed our products to work in exactly the way that they do. So another issue with the this idea of kind of fighting misinformation is that the incentives in the debate are maybe not as obvious as they first appear. So fighting misinformation sounds good, but on, on the other hand, you know, platforms have an incentive to report high numbers of things that they're yeah. taking down or perhaps not report. So it isn't obvious to people that the bad materials on their platform. Researchers have an incentive to write big attention grabbing studies about how bad the problem is. The press has an incentive to report exciting headlines or, you know, maybe underline how bad tech companies are at their jobs because there's a bit of a rivalry there. Are incentive structures a, a problem here? And if so, how how can that be fixed? Oh my god, there is there's such a problem. It's like it's like if you if we all wanted to write a grant to get a lot of money, we would start with the words we are going to fight misinformation. Um as opposed to we're going to improve content moderation or we've got a plan to make journalism a tiny bit better than it is at the moment. Because it is, it's it's sort of people feel it's an urgent problem. You're absolutely right about that. They can do something about. And as you say, actually, the more you look at it, the more you think, well, we can do some things. That, I mean, there are some things, right? So I think, again, it's all on the spectrum, isn't it? Where the real mis- the misinformation that's really harmful is the big lie about an election being so- stolen. The misinformation that's really harmful is a big lie about coronavirus not being that serious or even just an honest mistake saying coronavirus is not that serious or not airborne which is what so the world health organization in january last year said uh we don't think there's much chance of a human to human contact human to human spread at the moment that was the world health organization spreading misinformation but they didn't do it deliberately they made a mistake it often happens and i think trying to to make everything you can turn everything into you got that wrong this isn't framed correctly, etc. But an awful lot of this, I think, doesn't really matter. You know, a lot of it is interesting for the media study seminar and not that interesting beyond that. I mean, I love media study, study seminar, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but it's like it's like lawyers, you know, where you get a point that you're really, really fascinated by. But it doesn't really touch the outside world. But those big lies really do touch the outside world. And I think what everybody has to wake up to is that if you don't have any accountability systems in your democratic institutions, then bad actors and rotten politicians will lean on those extremely creaky doors and they will burst open for them. And that, I think, is the, is the big issue, uh, which is how do you stop abuses of power within the systems that we currently have? And that's also quite hard to do unless you can properly evaluate it we have a huge problem in evaluating you know what what is an abuse of power how how can we stop it i mean i think that the way that platform companies have reacted in the past year is super interesting because they've begun to act a little bit like an accountability mechanism rather than an enabling conduit uh, but they're doing it mainly in the US, they're not necessarily doing any anywhere else in the world. So, th- so I think we're now in just this really fascinating period that says, are we actually going to see a sea change in how platforms start to think about themselves? Um, because ultimately, they have a lot more power, I think, than the media. I mean, this has happened in the past 10 years, you know, the media is not really in control of anything anymore. 
Yeah, so I think that I think you're right that we are right at this sort of tipping point or this inflection point where we're not sure exactly what roles the institutions are going to play going forward. And sort of going back to your media studies seminar versus the lawyers, I think a, a really interesting thing that I have observed in this debate is that people that come from journalism or communications backgrounds feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of sort of adjudicating truth, even in politics, because it is, after all, what they trade in. But lawyers, who are the worst, says the lawyer, you know, get the heebie-jeebies about that because it is so deeply ingrained in us that free, a free speech right means nothing if it doesn't mean freedom for the thought that you hate or minority positions, um, and that history knows too many examples of censorship of unpopular ideas that turned out to not only be true but vital. And of course, you neatly cross this divide um, with a law degree and a career in journalism. <laughs> I, I, I noticed that when I put up a survey on Twitter from my students that were divided 50-50 on whether the platforms should have deplatformed Trump, your response was, ugh, lawyers. Um, so <laughs> do you think that there is this divide in the space? And I guess when you're thinking about the role, you just mentioned that the role that these platforms might play as an accountability mechanism and as a check, what would you say to the lawyers who get nervous about that idea? Because it is so hard to work out, you know, they don't want to be arbiters of truth and, and many of us don't want them to be arbiters of truth either. But on a daily basis, somebody has to arbitrate truth, right? Somebody has to tell you that it's going to be icy out and that you should be careful when you step outside your front door. Somebody has to tell you that today is the day that you need to do X or Y. You know, it's like somebody arbitrates the truth. And journalists are very comfortable with that because that is literally what we do for our entire careers on a daily basis, coming into work and going, is this true? Should we publish it? That's that's all you do. And because, you know, that sort of decision-making process about most of journalism is about deciding what not to publish, actually. And I think that you're right that the that, that lawyers look at it as a well you're you're trying to produce uh rather what the platform's trying to produce actually, which is a policy solution that scales or that creates a, a fair framework. Uh, so, so it's kind of understandable that there would be two very different responses to that. And I think sometimes what happens is that the platforms, because they are so big, they're also grotesquely oversized, mistake themselves for nation states that have to create these very long lasting big frameworks that says free speech is a good thing, where in fact, what they actually have to do is react in a much more culturally specific day to day basis, which is, you know, so, so, so this is my point about Donald Trump, really, which is the idea that you wouldn't deplatform him because it would in some way infringe on free speech. It's like, what kind of, it's, it's not infringing, you're not infringing on his free speech for a start. What you are doing is you're making a commercial decision that says, I don't really think that we should be, at this point, we should not be enabling something where we, which might end very badly. You know, we, we, can, we can test the cultural temperature. We don't like the direction it's going on. Let's pull the plug. It's like, Janet Jackson's top falling off during, it's not quite like Janet Jackson's top falling off during the Super Bowl, but you know, that somebody got fined for that, right? So I think you, it's, it's mistaking, and I can understand why lawyers go, oh, no, 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 you know, this is a sort of against free speech, but that doesn't work unless you have institutions that actually do make daily decisions, and you have lots of institutions that make daily decisions, so you can see a spectrum of different accounts of the same thing, hopefully truthful, different accounts of the same thing. You know, I think it would be a terrible thing if everybody was just a hand-wringing liberal who presented all news in exactly the same way. It's actually quite refreshing to see totally different viewpoints. You know, if I was news editing, would I have spent a lot of time focusing on Hunter Biden's laptop? No, I would not. I didn't necessarily think it was an important story. Is it terrible that Fox did it? No. I think that's a, that's exactly the sort of the range and diversity of types of story that you want in the pluralistic system. The problem is when you have very big companies trying to produce one law or one rule or a principle that extends, when you're talking about culturally specific speech markets, it's just not going to work. So does that help with the lawyers or not? What? Well, sort what of, but I, I do want to follow up on that because, you know, you say you wouldn't have talked about the laptop, but you think it's not wrong that, that Fox did. But of course, that's quite a high profile example of where the platforms did step in right. um, and took what 
seemed to be some exceptional measures. Uh, Facebook downranked the story before it got fact check, and 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 Twitter went nuclear and blocked all sharing of the link, right. and and blocked the New York Post account for uh, I can't remember it was several weeks I think. And so you know how does that fit in then to the the schema you're developing of well they need to arbitrate truth, but you just said it's okay that Fox you know was reporting on this story and that has some merit. How should platforms navigate that? Well, they just have to. Do, they have to navigate it on. I, I mean, this is going to sound. Lawyers are going to be throwing things at their non at their mobile phones. Don't have radios anymore. But you just have to. You you have to do exactly what happened, which is you have to navigate it on a daily basis according to the values of your company. And that, so that, in some ways, is why I picked the Hunter Biden laptop example because it was restricted on various platforms. I think it then completely within their right to say, what is leading the news on Twitter right now? If it's Hunter Biden's laptop, let's stop that because we think we're heading into a Comey emails situation. And that's what I mean about what is in what is front and centre and what is fringe. And that's what I mean when I say don't you know get rid of Newsmax and OAN and, and Fox News. But we have to accept that the gatekeepers, the people who really control what the set, what's central to media now are, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you know, and and anybody else who enters that arena at that scale. So, you know, kind of other things owned by Facebook largely. And they're making a decision that goes, we don't want actually this to be front and centre of what people are seeing because we don't think it's true. We're going to, we are going to downrank it. So I think that once you become this conduit for news and information, you are inevitably going to have to end up making those value judgments. And I think it's imperative that you make those value judgments at critical moments. Twitter and Facebook took the view that during the election cycle, they were going to be much more strict than perhaps they would otherwise. The question is whether or not they can now back away from that or whether they set precedent and they're now just going to have to spend a lot more time and money and effort and thought on actually moderating particularly news environments much more carefully than they did in the past and I and and if they do end up doing that then I don't think that's a bad thing at all I think that's a good thing. That's really interesting because it it sounds like a little bit of what you're suggesting is sort of, you know, platforms need to recognize that like like journalists and like journalistic organizations, they need to adopt values and abide by them. But but at the same time, we are in a moment right now, which I think you've you've touched on a bit before, where journalistic norms themselves are being questioned. So as as an example, we're recording this on on March 1st. The last couple of days, there's been a bit of a, a dust up where Sungmin Kim, who is a congressional reporter for the Washington Post, showed a tweet to Senator Lisa Murkowski of Neera Tandon, the nominee for uh, running the Office of Management and Budget that was critical of Murkowski. And Kim basically got piled on by a lot of angry uh, social media users who felt that she was just out to get Biden or Tandon and this was inappropriate. The Washington Post and Kim responded. Uh, There was a Marine Dowd column about it. So a lot of journalists kind of pushing back and saying, no, you know, it's our responsibility to hold power accountable no matter who's in power versus a lot of users on social media and people who read the paper who feel that perhaps it should be taking a different approach to uh, administration that's following the Trump administration, which broke so many norms. So the journalistic sort of modes of writing and reporting and holding power to account are themselves being challenged. Does that make the the necessity of platforms sort of recognizing their own norms more complicated? Mm. I think this is all, like I said before, I think this is all part of the same thing. I think, you know, if you think about just the scale of change that we've experienced in terms of how we communicate with each other, how we receive important information about, you know, the world around us and and, and the fact that that's happened in a decade, maybe 15 years at a push, uh, it's not surprising that, as you say, norms are unsettled and we have to remake them. And I think part of the problem has been you have journalism over here thinking about, oh, how do we remake our norms? 
And then you have platforms over there going, oh, well, you know, kind of we are not this type of business with that type of business. And if we become this type of business, then we have to really rethink all of our norms. And the answer to both constituents is yes, yes, you do. And we have to see how this settles to some extent. This is out of our hands now. Uh, this is in the hands of how users react. Uh, it's in the hands of all sorts of, you know, it's in the hands of how politicians react uh, within this world as well. I mean, this is what, you know, this is really what disruption is. It's not like a few bi- bad businesses closing down and a few good businesses <laughs> opening up in their place. It is a complete reordering of everything that you thought about the world. And actually, that's, but I think at the moment it's been very difficult. So, so there are clarifying moments, right? I would say that 2020 was a clarifying moment for America that having these unregulated, illegible systems running all over your communications architecture is going to end in a bad place because people who are unscrupulous and are unethical will always benefit in an unregulated market. It's the same in financial markets. It's why we have tightly tightly regulated financial markets, because people care about markets. They don't necessarily care about citizens. And I, I do think that you're right. Every norm has to be rethought in relation to all the other norms that have changed around them. And the, to some extent, the problem is that journalism is, having to, journalism is having to figure this out at the same time as tech. And there's a lot of finger pointing over the divide. And there's not much really thinking about, OK, well, what is a sensible approach that takes us all forward at the same time? You know, what, what are the things that we should be doing or could be doing to make this better and instead you just have an endless clubhouse conversations about what's wrong with the new york times <laughs> it's like it's like it's a you know, guys new york times you need to get you need to you need to move on it's, it's not just new york times it's kind of everything so talking about disruption of of journalistic norms i think that's also inextricably linked with the disruption of the economics of the business, which kind of brings us full circle back to where we started. But like an, as an example here, we talked to Rasmus last week about the Australian bargaining code. Uh, right. And one of the strongest critiques of the way that that fiasco has played out is that it entwines the fate of journalism even more with the platforms. So yeah. by engaging in revenue sharing arrangements with the platforms, it incentivizes the media to play the platform game in a sense. And instead of sort of building up other audience sources, they become more and more reliant on finding readers through the platforms with all of the ills that that brings. Like as we were talking about earlier, it incentivizes a certain kind of journalism, uh, a certain right. kind of content that is not necessarily the highest quality content. And so, I, you know, I'm wondering whether you think that's true and how we think about resolving that tension. No, I think that's completely true. So Rasmus and I may actually agree on something, which is, which is so I'm from the talk about Puritans with pointy hats. I am from the side of the aisle that says, Platforms and publishers actually do need a bit of a clear, bright line between them, and the intertwining of their businesses has has a level of inevitability about it. But it's become this really opaque patronage system, and the Australia, the Australian Code has, if you like, I think produced. I think that the you know the phrase I hope both sides lose was the one that dominated my thinking in the run up to it. And lo and behold, we have, I think, absolutely the worst of both worlds, which is you have a government-imposed solution, so you have regulation. But within that, there's like a massive opacity about who is actually doing the deal with who and how much money is involved. And it's, it, it is exact, it's exactly as you say, recipe for these two worlds to be very closely intertwined. And if you take on the, if you think about them not being the same, so if you think about journalism being an should be an accountability business, uh, and if the platforms are not going to be an accountability business, what does it mean that they're now enclosing an increasing amount of uh, journalism on terms that we can't actually see? I mean, I do think just publishing a few boring spreadsheets would actually solve a lot of the problems in in this respect. But I think it's cre- you know it sort of crept up, it sort of crept up on publishers as well in a way. Uh, that they don't really see anything wrong with being totally subsumed by the Facebook Google by the you know the Facebook Journalism Project or the Google News Initiative, 
And you take three steps back from it and you think, hang on a second, there's something not right about this. This is not, this is really not how independent journalists should be operating or, or forced to operate, to be honest with you. So I want to close out before I do. I, I can't let this podcast spread disinformation. For the record, the, the Pilgrim hats had flat tops, not pointy. Oh my God. Well, so, well, so, okay. So tall, tall hats. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, so, so to close out, I wanted to ask you, what's your focus going forward? We've talked about a lot of things here. What are you watching or researching in the the sort of space of digital media over the next few years? Oof. Well, there's the tiny field of AI, which is rapidly expanding. You know, to answer, I, th- I think it is this thing about we're moving into a post-broadcast world where we all get different messages at different times. I know that sounds lame. But all, everything that that involves, I think, is is just enormously interesting. And so our focus has always been on that relationship between large-scale technology platforms and newsrooms. That will continue, particularly with these you know, new codes and in, entanglements, um, a bit like even her kind of fear of content moderation. It's both a career for me, but also like, oh, my God, can you please stop? But I do think that probably, you know, and we get sick of, say this but artificial intelligence is going to reconfigure everything in the same way that the internet reconfigured everything in 1995 onwards and we haven't really again begun to understand what happened in the last wave let alone what's going to happen in 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 the next wave so i think there's that and then i think the second thing is actually just trying to connect some of these bigger issues like inequality to how we figure out a better media for the next generation i think that it's about time we had some mission and principles and some big thoughts about this is a bit of a mess uh how can we actually make something which is a lot better and that's quite exciting so that i think is the that's the that's the upside to all this horrible sludge that we have to trudge through all right let's end on the upside um emily (laughs) thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. <laughs>